Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. May, May the, the good Lord, Lord he bless you. May, May the good Lord, he bless you, 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 you. I said you, you, you. Happy birthday to Kessa. Happy birthday to you. Well, it's, it's your birthday. birthday. It's, it's your birthday. birthday. Happy birthday, bitch, to you. Say <laughs> you, 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 you. Say you, you, you. Happy birthday, sis. Happy birthday, Kessa. I love you. Thank you. That's my new name. It's Sissy Kessa. That was the musical stylings of Shanae Owanise Cross. You can couch her lounge act every day on Facebook. She sells nails. She sells true blend seasoning. She sells clothing. She sells eyelashes. You name it, she sells it. And she loves to sing the birthday song to people who watch her. I love it when she sings, happy birthday, bitch, to you. <laughs> happy birthday, bitch. So I am now 45 years old. My birthday was very uneventful. It fell on Mother's Day this year. I was actually born on Mother's Day in 1976. And so I was sharing my birthday with all of the mothers. Yeah, which is fine, which is fine. I, I didn't do anything. I didn't go out the entire weekend. I played video games, Dead by Daylight, Super Mario Party, etc. But it didn't have to be exciting because I'm going to Palm Springs with my friend Peter Bracky next weekend. Peter Bracky and I are going to go into the swimming pool and we're going to pop, pop pimples. And he's going to have all his band-aids in the swimming pool. Peter Bracky, he's always bouncing around playing pool, getting in the pool, everything with a P, eating popcorn, ugh, eating his braccaroni and cheese, which is basically his version of macaroni and cheese, where he picks off his scabs and he throws it into the macaroni and cheese. He's disgusting. But he's who I choose to spend my birthday with. He is the opposite of me, and maybe that is why I'm so drawn to him. He is so, he is so low drama. He is hassle-free. He is not a high-maintenance person at all. I love going to the desert. I love going to Palm Springs. If you haven't been before, the entire city sticks to this mid-century aesthetic. So everything looks like it's from the 1950s. They have all these ranch-style homes, and the colors are, are very reflective of the 1950s of mid-century stuff. And every time I go, I fall in love with a different aspect of the 1950s. I got, there's my favorite bar in the entire world is this place. I can't even remember the name of it because they've changed their name a few times. It used to be called Sidetracks, but I think it's called something different now. And it's a video bar, but they... All, the only videos and songs they play are from musicals and and stuff like that. So it's real fun. And every time I go there, I, 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 I get choked up because they play songs from the Little Whorehouse uh, in Texas, which my father and I used to watch in the early 1980s together. <laughs> I don't know why he was letting me watch that movie, but... And, uh, and so anything to do with Miss Mona, I really get into and I have a moment. And th then I'll learn stuff about the 1950s. Like my whole obsession with Jane's, Jane Mansfield came from the 1950s because I was at that bar once and they were playing 
the the title track from The Girl Can't Help It. I had heard the name Jane Mansfield before, but I had never seen a Jane Mansfield movie. I didn't understand the whole Jane Mansfield package, and I fell in love with her after watching this. You can Google it, actually. Just type in into YouTube, The Girl Can't Help It, and they have like a two and a half minute uh, music video, and it's a Little Richard song, and you get little clips from the movie, and she has this just like hourglass figure. I mean, like, she looks like Jessica Rabbit, and white blonde hair, and she is just catwalking all over the sets of this movie that was made in 1956. And so I, the next day after I saw this at Sidetracks, I was playing the Little Richard song on repeat and just walking around the pool because we rented a house like I was Jane Mansfield. And then I did all this research about her and I found out that uh, um, she was the mother of the Law & Order actress, Mariska Hargitay. Mariska. What are you going to name your kid? Mariska. And, and the way that she died, she died very early in her life. And she's born in the 30s. She died in 1967. And she was in, I believe, somewhere in Louisiana. And she was doing press uh, with, with radio stations. And her car was hit by a truck and she basically got decapitated and her two children, including Mariska Hargitay, were in the back seat. There's even a street name in West Hollywood called Mansfield. Many of you may be familiar with Jane Mansfield beyond her name because she's in that amazing photo with Sophia Loren when Sophia Loren was young, where Sophia Loren is giving Jane Mansfield the side eye, looking directly at her breasts because they're at some type of dinner where Jane, Ma Jane Mansfield's boobs are just basically exposed. And here, here's the backstory of that photo. So Jane Mansfield was incredibly intelligent, very, very smart, but she played against type because she was doing this uh, satire of this sort of Marilyn Monroe, airheady, not much going on upstairs uh, archetype that was popular in the 1950s. But she herself was brilliant. She, very savvy, very savvy. Knew how to work the press, knew how, knew all the ins and outs of that. And, and, and so if you look at somebody like uh, um, what's her name? The um, Kardashians, Kim Kardashian. People say she's no talent, no talent. Well, her one talent is she really knows how to work the press, right? She may not have any discernible career outside of working the press, but Jane Mansfield was an actress and she knew how to work the press at the same time. So here's the story behind that photo. So producers, Hollywood producers, were bringing. Sophia Loren to Hollywood for the first time, and they decided to ha for her to have like a, a coming out party of sorts at a hotel. And like, he here's, they're introducing the American press to Sophia Loren. And Jane Mansfield was not even invited to this party. <laughs> and so Jane Mansfield shows up with basically her knockers hanging out of her dress, is gallivanting around the party, is getting all of this press, she's basically upstaging Sophia Loren. And so she goes to Sophia Loren's table, plops herself right next to Sophia Loren, and that amazing shot of the side eye that Sophia Loren gives Jane Mansfield is, is a part of iconic snapshots in Hollywood history. I like going to Palm Springs because 
it's one of those places that inspires me to learn more about that decade and about people who were alive in that decade. And the 50s were obviously problematic for a lot of different reasons, especially if you were a gay or lesbian person or transgender or a racial minority in the context of the United States. But there was also a lot of beauty in it architecturally and the fashion is very cool to me. Palm Springs is like a little time capsule that you can go into. And it's a nice little break from LA. A nice little jaunt. You get onto the I-10, you just drive for like an hour and a half, two hours, and boom, you're there. And there's also a really great outlet mall right outside of the city where they have, when I say great outlet mall, they have a James Purse. What outlet mall do they have a James Purse at? But they do. They have a, a Diesel at this outlet mall. They have a G-Star at this outlet mall. They have all of the places bottoms must go to shop. Sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. Sidetracked, just like the name of the bar. This episode is sponsored by Sidetracks. Not really, but I'm, I'm hoping to go. I don't even know if it's going to be open. I think it's open. It better be open. The bars better be open because I'm ending my teetotaling the second I step foot in in Palm Springs. Uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Welcome to the 43rd episode of Fox in the City, the next chapter. That's what we're calling it now. And the reason why is because I've adopted a new format where every episode I give you three different chapters that are little little deep dives on my life and my view of politics and pop culture and the world. So let's get, let's open up chapter one, shall we? Chapter one! My most embarrassing experience. The type of work that I do is called autoethnography, and autoethnography is where you study a culture by studying yourself. It's perfect for somebody as egotistical and egocentric as me. One of the tricks to autoethnography as a research method to keep the story compelling is to locate embarrassing stories from your past, things that you never in a million years thought that you would ever share with somebody else and share them <laughs> with an academic audience. Because they won't judge. Academics aren't judgy at all. Academics do nothing but judge. They literally get paid to judge people, to give student scores. Like, you're just average. You're above average. You're below average. And then when it comes to research, they're peer review things. This is not good enough for this journal. This is, I guess, good enough for this journal, if you cite me. The reason I say that embarrassing experiences are great to include in autoethnographic research is because they're embarrassing for a reason because they tap into something that makes you feel guilty or ashamed or ooky. And, and those are the experiences that typically are worth sharing with the world. Because why do we feel a sense of shame over certain things that we uh, deal with in our day-to-day lives? So, okay, with no further ado, here's my most embarrassing experience. So I've recently done a YouTube video where I talk about gender fluidity and my evolved understanding uh, or how my understanding of gender fluidity has evolved. And one of the things that I admit to in this video is that when I was in middle school, I used to dress up as a girl in my bathroom and turn on the stereo really loud and lip sync for my life as if I was on RuPaul's Drag Race. And and so I would, I would, I would steal like a white dress from my stepmother Joyce from Long Island, and then I would steal some of her makeup, and I'd put on a lot of makeup. And my hair was already kind of long, so sometimes I'd just crimp my hair or kind of curl it around, or sometimes I would put a black T-shirt on my hair, and then I would play 
whatever hot pop music was happening at that period of time. Maybe it was the Hanky Panky soundtrack from Madonna when she did the movie with, uh, what's that guy she dated who is a, um, who's a male whore, basically. Warren Beatty, right? Hanky Panky, nothing like a good spanky. And I love that song, More. And that's more, 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 because it was so theatrical, right? And, and as Judith Butler would tell us, the great gender theorist, all gender is a drag. So, yeah, at any rate, that's what I would do. And I have full-on face of lipstick. And then sometimes I would, uh, right after that, I would masturbate. And I don't, I don't know what the connection was other than maybe being locked away in my room by myself. It wasn't like, or maybe it was like, because when I was, maybe this is what it is. Maybe it was when I was dressed up as a girl because I always wanted to have sex with men that I thought, okay, this is the time that I'm looking most like a girl. So it was easier for me to get in the mood to masturbate at any rate. Whatever the psychology was behind it, the most embarrassing thing that would happen to me is, okay, here we go. So in so I had a bedroom and I had a bathroom. And my bathroom was a connecting bathroom with another bedroom. I don't remember what the technical name is for that. But the other bedroom, which I always thought was haunted, was sometimes occupied by my brother, Jeff. And Jeff and I never had a really great relationship. He was just always very cold to me. And we just never really saw eye to eye about things. He was just not nice. He was just not nice to me growing up. And he was much older than me. I mean, over a decade older than me. And so I had... if. The music was too loud. I had my doors locked, of course, if I knew that I was going to dress up in girly clothing and put on makeup and stuff. But I guess I was listening to, I was blasting Madonna or the Divinals too loud. So he picked the lock of my bathroom and he came in to, it wasn't enough to just turn the volume down or to stop the tape that was playing. He had to make a big scene out of it and rip the entire cord out of his wall. But when he came in to do that, it just so happened that I was laying down on my stomach, dressed in drag and masturbating. Cause that's how I used to masturbate when I was little. Like I would lay on my stomach. I don't know. I don't know why, but we all have our little quirks, I guess. And, and I was watching one of the pornos that I'd stolen from my father. And so my brother walks in on this scene. He comes and he rips the cord out she says, your music is too loud. Not acknowledging how mortifying this experience must be for me. I would be, if I were him, I would, I would have been embarrassed to have, to have done that. Like, oh my gosh, no, when people have locked doors, maybe honor that. But I don't think he has much of a sense of boundaries for a lot of different reasons. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, that happened between the two of us. And you can imagine, I just, I was frozen there. And I probably started crying. I, I, I don't really remember what happened because there were so many secrets packed into that moment, right? I'm in middle school, so I'm just discovering my body. 
and um, and and baiting off with some regularity. I'm experimenting with with drag, which is and, and dressing up like a woman and putting on makeup. I mean, there's just there's so much humiliation packed into that nucleus of mortification and 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 there it is and there it is and strangely enough i never that anecdote never ended up in any of my autoethnographic writing which is maybe why i'm sharing it all with you i have used it i did a guest lecture at san diego state and i used that story <laughs> i can't believe i shared this stuff with total strangers but i shared that story with the graduate students saying as an example of you know you're on to something right if you're sharing something that you find mortifying or something that you thought you would never tell anybody else. But who knows? Maybe I'll maybe I'll write about it and it'll end up in a book or maybe I'll do another one man a one person show and it'll end up in my one person show. Before we do that, I wanted to give you a flyer <laughs> okay. for my new one man show. Oh. Uh, it's called Glen Gary, Glen John Glen. It's odd to me how that desire to dress up in women's clothes and and my identification as female is is truly something that just passed as as I grew up as I went through puberty because it was so strong when I was in middle school. Who knows? Who knows? And and then but for other people it stays with them for the rest of their lives and that's how they identify. I don't talk to my brother Jeff anymore and and here's why. So we did reconnect a bit when when he 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 became an attorney and he moved to New York and then 9/11 happened and that really pushed him over a, a psychological edge. He had a, a very hard time with that. As many people did, but him especially hard. And but he started treating me better because when I was doing poetry, he became friends with people in New York who had seen me perform. And so he began to value me. I get, this is just my reading of it, because other people started to value me. And then I start doing a podcast that becomes a little popular, and then I get onto Big Brother. And so suddenly there are reasons to start treating me like a human being instead of some being that was just placed in his life to annoy him. But whatever, I was going to take what I could get at that point. I, yeah, I was happy. I was happy. And and so I, I, I tried to establish a relationship. I mean, I, we both tried. We both tried. But um, so when I was younger, when I was a kid, and like I said, there's a big age difference between the two of us, one of his friends sexually molested me. And I had a conversation with them a few times over email and I said, Hey, this happened. And I know that this was somebody who you were friends with beyond high school because he came over to our house later when you were in college. And I would really like to know this guy's name because it's just part of my process. I want to be able to, you know, if I want to send that guy an email, I, I have every right to say, to send him an email and say, I want you to know that I remember what you did and it was wrong, but maybe I wouldn't have gone down that road, but I just feel like I had a right to know that. That, that his friend was there on, on my brother's clock and my brother wasn't paying attention to where he went and he certainly had enough time to sexually abuse me. My brother claims that he has no memory of 
this friend. He has no idea what his name is. He's, it's a little bit like my brother is pleading the fifth. It's convenient amnesia. And I've given him all of these details. And I know he knows, but he's just not going to share the information with me. For a little bit, I thought I would be okay with that. That that was something that I would be able to compartmentalize if it meant having a better grown-up relationship with my brother. And then my brother said something to me, which I was like, you know what, this is a deal breaker for me. I can't have a relationship with you. And it was something very simple, too. When I was younger, I uh, my, my parents ate a lot of Jewish food, like gefilte fish, and just stuff that is not appealing to a picky eater like me. And so I had my own like little cubby drawer that had all the foods that I liked to eat. And so it was stuff like Gatorade and Little Debbie snack cakes, like Swiss cake rolls and Star Crunch and my cereal. And my brother, I don't know how this conversation started, but he said something about, yeah, I, re I remember how disgusted I used to be with you because your diet was so awful. You would eat... You would eat these star crunches and drink and drink Gatorade. And for some reason, that really hit me at my core when he said that. Because from my perspective, I was like, hold on. The thing that you remember about me when I was younger was that I was eating Gatorade. And by the way, he's like a chronic... A uh, weed smoker. And I always find people like that, you know, like notice in your life, if you know anybody who's addicted to drugs, and I'm not saying that my brother was doing hardcore drugs. I mean, marijuana, lots of people do a lot of marijuana, right? It's not quite the same thing as doing heroin or, you know, stuff like that. But the people, who, for instance, that I've known who are addicted to crystal meth also have this weird counterintuitive thing where they're like, I'm not going to eat any food that's even touched aluminum foil because you can get Alzheimer's disease that way and cancer. And I'm like, hold on, you were buying crystal meth that somebody cooked in their bathtub and suddenly you're drawing the line at aluminum foil. Like you're not going to drink a Coke out of a can because of the aluminum. Give me a break. So there was a little bit of that going on with my brother where I'm like, oh my God, you smoke endless amounts of marijuana to, to where, in my opinion, it's resulted in some pretty significant psychological damage for you into your later adulthood. But the bigger issue for me was that when you look at my childhood, what you you remember and, and what disgusts you is my diet where I would be drinking sports drinks and little Deb and eating little Debbie snack cakes and he also made a big deal out of cereal cereal so bad for you I can't I can't and that may have been what started the conversation I talked about how much I love a bowl of cereal at the end of the day and he he decided to like get on me about that and so I was like hold on all of this is so significant to you to where you feel like you have to chime in on a Facebook post, yet you have no memory of your friend who was 16 years old and sexually abused me when I was six. That to you is just, you can't recall. I can't remember it. The more I pondered that philosophical issue, it became, it really did become a philosophical issue for me, an, eth an ethical question. The more I realized I can't, this isn't really a brother to me. This isn't really somebody I can trust or has 
a true interest in my well-being and i haven't talked to him since i defriended him on facebook i've very much lived my life by the golden rule and if i had a younger sibling and my younger sibling said hey one of your friends molested me i can't remember his name but this is exactly what he looked like and he came over to the house again seven years later under these circumstances I would do everything that I could to remember who that person was, and then I'd probably kick their ass, and then I'm a non, even though I'm a nonviolent person. And so there are some things in life that I'm sorry you can't get over. You can't get over. And for me, that's one of them. And for my brother, it, it, the thing that he can't get over is that I ate cereal and Little Debbie snack cakes growing up. So we all have to pick our battles, I suppose. That's what they mean, by the way, when they say pick your battles. If I wouldn't feel maturity, none of this would have happened. If you weren't so wise beyond your years, I would have been able to control myself. If it weren't for my attention, you wouldn't have been successful. And if, if it weren't for me, you would never have amounted to very much. Chapter two, talent. I must have had a talent for sex when I was a little kid because I got laid all the time from like six years old to seven years old by adults, by teenagers, older teenagers. I, I, there's a play called The Prime of Miss Jean Brody where it's this older school teacher played by Maggie Smith in the film. She won an Academy Award for it, Best Actress. And she says, little girls, I'm in... Oop. Oop, I just hit my microphone. And she hit her microphone. Uh, I'm in the business of putting old heads on young shoulders, and all of my pupils are the creme de la creme. And Miss Brody, I mean, she's a very problematic figure in, in the play. She, she loves Mussolini and fascist dictators, <laughs> and she's giving this education to these little girls who just adore her and look up to her. And she's going through all of the talents of her little girls. There's a, a male teacher named Mr. Lloyd who comes in. She goes, oh, Mr. Lloyd, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, let me tell you about my little girls in my class. This is Alberta, and she's histrionic. She's going to be a famous actress. And this is... Um, this is Miranda, and Miranda has a skill for painting, and she's just amazing with paints and watercolors. She is going to be outstanding in museums, Mr. Lloyd. And then it comes to her favorite little girl, and it's Jenny. And she goes, oh, and this, this is Jenny. And you can just tell by the way she slows down and she breathes in. She's just breathing in Jenny's amazing energy in the earth. And she goes, Mr. Lloyd. Jenny would be famous for sex. And it's just this little girl. And maybe I was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit of a Jenny. That was my talent. That's what I was going to do. You will be sexually molested by many people. Thank you. Thank you, Miss Jean Brody. But that's not really what my talent is. How sad that we live in a society where the, the sexual uh, molestation of children is so rampant that maybe 
anybody could grow up to be a 45 year old bottom like me and, and say that that might have been a talent for theirs. Of course, I'm being a little bit ironic, but also, I mean, I am speaking to a reality that I survived. I have been watching this documentary on Netflix, this docuseries. It is done by Martin Scorsese, who is so talented, so talented. And he it's called Pretend It's a City, in which he follows his friend, the humorist Fran Lebowitz, and... And she is a little bit of a misanthrope, and that's her shtick. And and she goes on a lot about talent during this docuseries. And she has a lot of interesting things to say. My own experiences with talent, I, I was just talking about in a previous podcast about how I watched the Academy Awards when, when Silence of the Lambs swept everything, and then I held a bottle of conditioner, and I was like, I want to be a famous actor. Reagan is histrionic. And and that's what I thought. And then I realized, and, and I got parts and plays when I was in high school. I won Best Actor my senior year for playing Lenny in Rumors. I was also Jack in Into the Woods. That was my breakout role. I'm still friends with my high school drama teacher today. Candace, she's lovely. She's really a wonderful human being. And she let me, she, in fact, she let me dress up and drag. And it was a place, it, it was a, um, a place where I could experiment with my gender identity. And in fact, one of the things I did, we competed. It's so funny how all of these stories are connected in their own way. UIL one act play one year, we went, we competed against Katie Taylor High School, and they staged The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, and that's how I learned about Jean Brody. And then we did a parody of all the plays that we competed against and invited the schools we competed against, and I was Jean Brody in The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, and I still have a picture of me dressed up as Jean Brody. Thank you. That's why even to this day, I can do the accent and all the affectations of Jean Brody. Little girls, you are the creme de la creme. Well, when I got into college, I thought I was going to be a theater major because that was that was my calling. And I, I, I only auditioned ever for two plays. I got called back for one. And, uh, and I quickly learned that there really wasn't... That, that was my first understanding that if you're gay you don't even get the gay roles because those have to go to the straight actors in the theater department. And, and I thought, oh, well, there's, no matter how talented I am, and, and I, I'm not even particularly all that talented as an actor, but I learned very fast, like, okay, I have to temper what my dreams are because I would have to be extraordinarily talented to make it as a gay actor. You already have to be super talented if you're straight, but I would have to take it to another level. And so that's why I went into communication studies, which was then speech and started doing forensics or speech and debate competitions again when I went into college. That's just a little bit about me. The takeaway here is not everybody learns that lesson. They they don't learn, and you see it on American Idol a lot, where you have these kids who come in and they think they're so talented as singers and then they're only brought in for us to point at and laugh at like oh my god you are so not talented your talent is not realizing how untalented you are earlier i was playing that clip of the woman singing the birthday song nay she thinks that she is going to be a famous singer that's what she thinks and that was actually the best rendition of the birthday song i have ever heard her do normally 
it's a lot pitchier if I was being Randy Jackson. It's a lot pitchier than that. And even when people on her live are like, honey, it's not that you're a bad singer, but it's it it's you have to stop holding out like this dream is really going to become a reality because even for truly talented singers, 95% of them, they're not going to make it. And you're not even, you're not even that good, honey. And, and so I don't know if it is a form of denial, I don't know the psychological ins and outs of it, but it is very important. Part of growing up, part of adulthood is, is learning the limits of what you can and can't do, leaning into the things that you can do and, and, and the things that you're not talented at, maybe you can still do them. I can't sing a lick. You hear me when I try to sing on my podcast, but I'm not going to go out on street corners and try to sing or make a career out of it. I normally keep it restricted to my house. In my most self-indulgent moments, I'll sing along to something, music in the podcast. I know I'm not a singer. It doesn't mean I can't do it. I may even do a karaoke, but I'm not going to I'm not going to work under the illusion that I am a, I am a singer. So I'm just going to play a little bit from Pretend It's a City Where Fran Lebowitz is making this uh, very important um, statement about knowing when you're not talented, knowing when you're not good at something. And it's a, it's a realization that young Fran happened when, I think she was in elementary school. I remember the first time I recognized a lack of talent in myself. I played the cello as a child, and I, we had a school orchestra. Every school had an orchestra. This little public school, every public school had an orchestra. Um, and they lent you the cello. At a certain age, I don't remember what age it was, the school took back these cellos. Um, and if you wanted to continue playing, you had to buy a cello. Of course. So I remember Money. very well uh, telling this to my parents, now we have to give the cello back, and now we have to buy a cello. Um, and I remember, we lived in a little split-level house. There were like, I don't know, four stairs, that, and then the kitchen. And I would like sit on the stairs and listen to my parents talk. And I heard my parents trying to figure out how to pay for a cello. And so I went in the kitchen, where I wasn't supposed to know they were like having this discussion. And I said, you know, don't buy me a cello. I'm not good. I'm really not good. It's not worth it. It's not worth spending the money on me on this. And my mother said, well, you know, that's because you don't practice enough. If you practice more, you'd be good. Typical parent response. Said, no. If I practice more, I'd be better. But I'm never going to be good. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. It's the only thing I can remember enjoying that I was bad at. Um, because, of course, the whole orchestra playing, you don't really hear how bad I am. <laughs> There's beauty in that. There really is. There's beauty in knowing your limits and, and, and what you're skilled at and what you're not good at. And, and you never want to appear out of your depth. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the day after I watched this, I, I, I was on Facebook and I, I made this comment about this shit that I'm having to go through with my pet insurance company. And just, uh, I'm going to make this as fast as possible because it's not really the point. So I had this uh, pet insurance called uh, Healthy Paws. And when I first got it, Bo is now five years old. He just turned five. When I first got it, it was like $50 a month. And then last year, they went up to, they jumped me up from 50 to 100. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm filing too many claims. And then so I, uh, 
I was like, I'm not going to make a claim all year, which I didn't, and thinking that the rate will go down. And because that's the way auto insurance works, right? So, like, that's the reason why nobody ever wants to file a claim with their auto insurance because their premium will go up. So I get an email from them just a few weeks ago saying that my monthly premium for my pet insurance is going to go from 100 to $150. So I called them. I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. I haven't even done a premium. You know, I haven't done anything. And they were like, no, it doesn't matter. You can do as many, uh, you can file as many claims as you want. That's not how we work. We look at your state and how many, um, how many claims are filed in your entire state. So I posted a Facebook post about this, just kind of venting my frustration because that just seemed absurd to me. And my neighbor who, I'm not going to say his name, but my neighbor who is a log cabin Republican, he's from, he's from the South originally, I think one of the Carolinas. And it, just somebody who, I, he's really sweet and inoffensive to me in a lot of ways. He's very kind to me. But he has a lot of values that are just so inconsistent with my own. Like, for instance, he went to Puerto Vallarta during the pandemic and then came back and he had COVID. And, you know, just stuff like it. And the way he votes, he's like a, a Trump Republican and stuff like that. It's very... Um, but but I try to keep a distance or I try to compartmentalize that. Like, look, politically, we don't agree on anything but he's a nice guy and I don't want to just, I, I don't want to be one of those person who just cuts somebody off because of their politics. And frankly, to me, to be a log cabin Republican, which by the way means that you are a gay person who's a Republican, to me, I do see a lot of attention seeking behavior in that. I, I really honestly wonder if, do you really believe in that stuff or is it, this is part of your shtick. You know that it's going to get you a lot of attention by people saying, oh my God, you're gay and a Republican? And then other Republicans will love you for it. But then other, you know, it will be a conversation starter where people want to debate you or what. I don't know. It just seems to me like attention-seeking behavior. So he responds to my post about my pet insurance. And he says, sounds like socialism for pet insurance. And then the shruggy emoji. And that just... Uh, and anytime he's tried to come to my Facebook page with some type of political opinion, I always swat him down to the point where it's kind of like he should know not to come and say something stupid because I'm always going to end up um, uh, putting him in his place. I mean, for lack of better words, and I hate to make it seem so like I'm denigrating him or I, you know, I don't value his input. But in in all actuality, I don't value his input because it's never it never seems. Um, intellectually rigorous or honest to me. So I responded and I was like, girl, no, the health insurance industry is an example of capitalism's horrors, not socialism. And the insurance industry is symptomatic of treating healthcare and medicine in this country as profit, whether it's human medicine and insurance or pet medicine and insurance. The problem with cost of high health care cost in this country is the fact that it's capitalism gone amok, right? And and so then I said, you know, I'm always slack-jawed by the inverse relationship between people constantly posting about politics, which this guy always does. It's He's always posting some type of political opinion. Every You go to his Facebook wall and 90% of the posts 
are these half-baked ideas in which he's saying that Biden is a socialist and, and Trump is great and all of this other stuff. But when you try to count, call him out on his logic, he, do, he doesn't really have anything to say because you can tell he hasn't thought any of this stuff through. He's latched on to the identity of being a conservative without really thinking through any of the thoughts. So I said, uh, you know, it, 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 um, it concerns me that you're able to post something like you did in response to that, claiming that my pet's health insurance was um, <laughs> an example of socialism, that you don't see the logical flaw. Uh, and, and then I said, I know that you love dishing about politics, but, you know, your positions are so flawed and ineffectively articulated. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing this? Because to me, it reminds me of what Fran Lebowitz is saying. Like, you can't play the cello. No matter how much you practice it or however much you write about politics, you're never going to be good at it. You're never going to be good at it. So why do that? Like I said, I can't sing. I don't go on street corners and sing for people. I don't do that. So why are, you, why are you doing this with politics? And you see it a lot of times when people really are not politically astute in any way. You look at their Twitter timelines or the Facebook timelines and everything is about politics. And it's like this, do not lean into this. Lean in another direction. And then my friend Jonathan Cottrell piped in and said, because I, I this is also in the news, because there are class action lawsuits right now against Healthy Paws for doing this entire thing. And basically it's documented in the news that the reason why these hikes are happening is because the CEOs want to pad their salaries and be able to also increase the dividends to their shareholders. And hello, socialized medicine isn't for profit. The only response that he had was that, hey, I'm just calling it like I see it. He has, he has no response to the substantive arguments that I made or anybody else made. I, I, this is just the way I see it. And so my friend Bo responded, not the dog, but my friend from Austin. He was like, you know, when people have really bad ideas and they often defend their bad ideas by saying, I'm just calling it the way that I see it, not realizing that that is in fact the problem. That's not something that you want to trumpet or celebrate. The problem is that you are calling it as you see it. And in, in, in other words, the way you see it is just fucking wrong. Know your talent. That's all I'm saying. Know your talent. If you can't cut hair, then don't be a hairdresser, right? No matter how hard you try, some people just aren't going to be able to cut hair the right way. If you can't sing, then don't go on to Stairway to Stardom at, like Lucille Cataldo and sing a song. Hairdresser, hairdresser, whoa, hairdresser, hairdresser, uh-uh, hairdresser, 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 would you set me up, make a little wave or two, make me into something new. I'll give you a chance Cause I wanna dance And if you really would It would be understood I'll make sure I tip you good Cut my hair, it won't behave Set it up with gel and wave One or two ringlets Keep the top a little wet Hey, don't get so upset 
You're taking much too long. Are you sure this piece looks great? I'm worried, I'm tired, I'm late. Oh, hairdresser, won't you let me down? I'm taking me. Tell me under something new, cause I'm so blue. It is catchy. It's ca she could be a song writer, but not a song singer. Kind of like Candy Burris from The Real Housewives of Atlanta. I love the songs that she has written. She she wrote songs for TLC. She has won a Grammy for songwriting, but she starts singing, and I'm like, ooh, Candy, Bur <laughs> Candy Burris looks so much better now. When she first started that show, she had that short, short hair, and she looked like a gargoyle like a little goblin. And then she clearly hired some stylist and she looks g gorgeous now. She looks pretty now because you have to go to where the talent is. Okay, chapter three. Mea culpa. That's what I'm going to call this chapter. Hold on, I have to write that down or else I'm going to forget it. Because, you know, in the last podcast, I had the great, a great title for one of my chapters. I said, I'm going to call this Fairfax. And then I, I forgot that when I was writing the notes on the episode, and I just called it My Neighborhood. Oh, God, bottoms, you know? Am I right, ladies? Bottoms. We're all Chrissy Snow. Originally, this chapter was going to be about how I've been rewatching Sex and the City, and I'm in season three right now, and I just find Carrie Bradshaw to be such an asshole. Sex and the City is really one of my all-time favorite shows. In fact, we wouldn't have the show title Fox in the City without Sex in the City. I started watching the show when I was in my 20s, and I just thought Carrie Bradshaw was so relatable. Hi, I write a sex column about sex and all of my four sexy friends having sex and giving blowjobs, and, and we have sex and sometimes anal. Ooh, backdoor, yes. Love Samantha. Oh, honey, tell me about your big giant horse cock. <laughs> And now re-watching it at 45, I don't find Carrie Bradshaw to be a sympathetic character in the slightest. I don't like her. I, I'm in season three right now and she's dating Aiden, who is this perfect guy who just treats her so wonderfully and she shits on him, she cheats on him. Oh honey, maybe he just has really funky spunk. You know, I dated a guy who had the funkiest spunk ever. How are they gonna do, how are they reboating this show without Samantha. Explain that you need Samantha. And I need that giant, beautiful dick. Samantha is like punctuation on that show. Uh, is Sex in the City without Samantha is like having a sentence without a period. I, I don't, I don't understand how you do the show without her. I don't, but hopefully they'll find a way. I'm excited that there's going to be a more diverse cast. They said they're gonna be three new regular girlfriends and they're gonna all be women of color on top of Charlotte and Miranda. Miranda, uptight Miranda. I'm a Miranda, I feel. But watching, re-watching the series and seeing how awful she is to Aiden, I, I had this aha moment because at first I was identifying more with the Carrie character where I dated this guy named John when I was, I don't know, maybe like 20 years old. And he was the nicest guy. He was my Aiden, I guess. 
in a way. And I cheated on him and, and I came clean just like Carrie did. I told him and he still handled that very graciously, even more graciously than Aiden did. And it was just one of those things where no matter, maybe it was because he was too available to me or whatever, but my, my stomach never did flips over him. As the saying goes, the heart wants what it wants. Incidentally, I'm still friends with John and he got married several years ago and his husband died during the pandemic. I don't know what from, I don't know if it was like a heart attack or if it was, I don't think it was pandemic related, but, uh, and my heart broke for him and I reached out and he said, he's such a wonderful man. And I hope that we'll be friends for the rest of our lives. The aha moment for me rewatching season three is I also identify with Aiden because in my last relationship with Zach, I believed that I was the Aiden. Like I was so in love and I did everything right. And, and when he broke up with me, it just broke my heart completely. And he knew how much I loved him and how I would have done anything for him. I would have gone to the moon and back, as the kids say. Well, not the kids, the octogenarians, as they say. Those crazy kids. That's part of the beauty of Sex in the City, that the relatability cuts in so many different directions. Sometimes you're the asshole, and then sometimes somebody has to shit on you because, as I was saying before, the heart wants what it wants, and sometimes it doesn't want you no matter how much you may want it. Oh, and honey, I want it bad. And by it, I mean dick. And by dick, I mean your dick. But ma'am, I just need you to sign for the package. Okay, I'll sign for your package. There are times now in life at, at middle age, 45, 45, 45, where I think, I wonder if John and I gave it another shot if it could work. And then I have to remind myself, no, things don't really change because I've had similar experiences. Like I was friends with this one girl on the speech team at the University of Texas and she used to drive me crazy and get on my nerves. And she's so sweet. She Like sometimes somebody can be so nice, but they just push all the wrong buttons in you. And I was so mean to her and she was still friendly to me. And then I remember I moved to Los Angeles and I, I, I think I reached out to her and apologized for just being not kind to her when we were in college. And she came to visit me and within the first hour, I was like, oh no, no, no. I remember why. Yeah, I rem I'm starting to go a little bit haywire right now. All of the synapses are firing in the wrong direction. I'm so annoyed. That doesn't make me a bad person, but some people just can't share space together. And I still love this person. We're still Facebook friends, and I'm so excited to see all the things that she's doing in her life. I just need that distance. I used to beat myself up over stuff like that, too. I'd be like, this person is so nice, and I'm so jerky to them. I must be such a bad person. And I would spend just such a long, as part of my obsessive compulsive disorder, I spend so much time beating myself up. And then one day I realized not everybody is for everybody, especially when it comes to being in close proximity to somebody else. And that doesn't make you a bad person. It's just, you're not compatible in that way. And when I had that realization, I went, <gasps> oh, then I went, oh, oh. no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Uh, 
these are the things that come with age. What can I say? They're the little gifts that come with age. One of the other things, and this is why I'm going to call this mea culpa, I'm going to tell you about something that happened today at the gym. So uh, normally, I, uh, when I was younger, I'd fly off the handle over some situation, let's say like a mundane road rage situation, or somebody looks at me the wrong way, or somebody does something I don't like, and get into some type of verbal altercation with them. And then I, I, I've really been mindful in my 40s of not giving in to my darker angels and, and, and taking people to task because then when things escalate, I end up saying things that I regret. I go ad hominem and then I feel like the biggest jerk and such a bad person and I can't just let it go. Like somebody without OCD can just like let it go, right? I, I stew in it and I, I feel awful. And I, I just, I negatively talk about myself to myself. Well, part of mindfulness has helped me with this because part of uh, making that stop, if it's a bad habit of yours, is you have to catch the thinking error when it happens and you have to say, okay, I, I can I can say something in this situation, but then this is likely what the result is going to be, and then it's going to spin out of control. Then I'm going to end up beating myself up over it. So, if, you know, if I'm in traffic and somebody is double parked or whatever, I'm just going to let that go because it's not worth the implication of me being horrible to myself for the next couple of weeks, okay? Well, today at the gym, I... Uh, I got into a verbal altercation with somebody, but I don't feel guilty about it. And here's why. So <clears throat> it was leg day for me at the gym. And anybody who works out knows leg day is already a shit show. It's already the worst thing that can ever happen to anybody. Fuck waterboarding. Make people at Guantanamo do leg day. Okay. So I'm on the elliptical and there is this guy, you know, you have to have a free elliptical in between everybody, one or two free ellipticals. And so the guy who's next to me, I notice, is chin strapping his mask. So his mask is not covering his mouth or his nose. So I kind of look over and I, with an annoyed look and I just go, ugh. And because there are mirrors everywhere in the gym, me looking forward, all I can do is see him. It's like Bloody Mary or Candyman. I'm looking into the mirror and seeing death on the other side of me. Like, put your fucking mask on. You're at the gym. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Please. This is common sense. And... So I, I have to think, I have to be mindful in the situation. I say, okay, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I just gave a little look, and but I'll be off of here very, very soon. So the guy stops working out, and I'm thinking, okay, good. He's going he's gonna to move away. And he takes a big swig out of his water, and he's off the elliptical right now. And then he just spits up all of this water on the ground next to his elliptical. And... I see that and immediately I turn my head over to him and just give him the nastiest look. I don't say anything at this point. I just give a nasty, I mean, that warrants a nasty fucking look. Sorry, the common public areas of the gym are not your bathroom. Where's the bathroom? Where isn't the bathroom? Jeez, wear a catheter, go in the corner. And I have my Sony over the ear headphones on that are noise canceling and so I see like he has clearly seen my dirty look and he's trying to engage me and I could tell he's saying something along the lines of like do you have a problem do you have a problem so uh, 
I take my Sony earphones off and I hear him say, do you have a problem? And I'm like, yeah, actually, problem number one, put your mask on whenever you're on the equipment. And problem number two, you just spit all over the floor. One of the reasons why I don't like having conversations, because I've seen people at the gym prior to this who aren't wearing a mask. And the reason why I don't engage them is because number one, it's not worth my time. And number two, I find a lot of people who don't wear a mask or don't wear masks properly is attention-seeking behavior. They want somebody to say something so that they can then fly off the handle. Mind your own business. What is it you, but I'm wearing a mat and you're not wearing a mat. You want to wear a mat. So I don't even like to go there because it's kind of like feeding the troll, right? You're giving them exactly what they want. And I want a big, giant horse cock, honey. Thank you, Samantha. See, Samantha, Samantha just brings everything up. She just lightens the mood. So now I'm 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 forced into this confrontation. And rather than just a normal person saying, Mea culpa, I apologize. You're right. I, I should have been wearing my mask the correct way. I shouldn't have spit on the floor. I should no. Now it becomes an opportunity to double down. Because frankly, somebody who has such shitty matters. Did I say matters? Manners. Such shitty manners and, and, and such little regard for public health during a global pandemic. This is not the most self-reflexive type person, <laughs> right? They're not, they don't care. They don't care. They're going to bring it on. Bring it off. I can piss on the floor. I'm going to take a shit right here. Mind, and then say, mind your own business. Like douchebag, it is my business when you're doing this on the elliptical next to me. You're making it my business. So uh, he, he tried to argue that, and he really raised his voice. You could hear it across the gym. He, he was like, that wasn't spit, that was sweat. You need to pay attention. You need to pay attention, pay attention. He kept repeating that I need to pay attention. And I was like, okay, well, let's start with the fact that you still don't have your mask on. Number one, put your mask on and then work your way up to telling me that I need to pay attention. And it just, it didn't go anywhere positive. It didn't go anywhere positive. Neither of us cursed, which is good. It just got really intense and he got really loud. He was drawing even more attention to himself. And I'm like, you don't want to draw more. Everybody here is going to agree with me. I'm not the asshole here. I don't have to go to that Reddit. Am I the asshole? Everybody around here knows who the asshole is. Number one, I keep saying number one. I don't know why I'm, I'm enumerating. Today's a day of enumeration for me. I have to, everything has to number. Number 38, nobody should have to intervene and tell you to wear your mask properly. Let's start there. Let's start there. If you don't want the attention, if you don't want somebody, if, if you don't want people paying attention to you, where you wouldn't have to say pay attention just do kind of like the basic courtesies how about that how about that how about that how about that cash me outside cash me outside that's what i should have said cash me outside how about that how about that and if if you find yourself in a situation where you are doing something wrong people do this driving a lot too like if they're doing something illegal like double parked or something, and you honk at them, they act like you're the asshole. They act like, what are, what are you talking about? What's wrong with me in three spaces, three parking spaces? Mind your own business. If somebody has to do the uncomfortable act of telling you, like intervening and saying, what you're doing is not fair, to, you're not the only person on the planet, there are other people here, then just be like, I'm sorry, dude. You're right. I'm sorry. 
It's as easy as that. And it's so, it, it, and doing that puts you in such a better place as a human being karmically than doubling down on being an asshole. And it's, and, and, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm sure we're all guilty of it. I, the natural reflex reaction mentally speaking, is to become, is to come from a defensive posture. But there's so much beauty and grace in acknowledging when we're wrong and saying, mia culpa, my bad. I want to remind everybody that you can leave me a voicemail where you leave a comment about the show or, or, or you ask me a question that I can answer on the show. I could be your life coach. I could be your bottom life coach. Reagan Fox, America's Next Top Bottom, Bottom Chef, the Bareback Contessa. Let me do this for you. Let me help you. I could be your Carrie Bradshaw. I'm answering your questions in my column. Although that's not what she does. She just writes about sex. Uh, at any rate, you please, please utilize this because it makes the show more interactive. And I love engaging with all of you. And we love hearing your voice because it gives us something to feed off to. In order to do that, all you have to do is call 323-207-0996. That's 323-207-0996. And I will play your beautiful words on my show. I will close out with more wisdom from Fran Leibowitz. Femme d'Alger. Picasso Femme d'Alger. Wonderful painting. Where do we open this? $100 million to open it. $100 million. $105 million. Great Picasso, nude green leaves and bust in 1932. $58 million to start this. Why not? 129 million. Who'll give me 130? 47 might do it. At $92 million, 93 million. Wait, wait, wait. 147, you see? 147. 93 million. Against you here, against you here. Don't wait. 147. I'll sell it against you. $95 million. Last chance at 95. $95 million. Family of bidding, thank you so much. At $160 million, ladies and gentlemen, fair warning, Picasso Femme d'Alger, selling it here at Christie's, $160 million, Brett, it's yours, so. You think, in terms of our culture now, any of the art forms, which is the most, I don't know, wanting at this point? You, you mean which is the worst? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a tough field. It's yeah, a, no, yeah. it's hard. It's hard. Um, uh, which has the most opportunity for chicanery? Mm -hmm. I would say um, the visual arts, mm. you know, or what are called the visual arts, you know. Um, and I, but I'm certainly one of the few things I'm not alone in thinking that. Ah. You know, I think that that's. I think that there's wide agreement on this. It's quite a racket. Yeah. Yeah. Do yes. you agree? Yes. I do agree, but the uh, I keep thinking of the prices and. Yeah, that's extraordinary. What I mean. Yeah, the racket. Yeah. I mean, that's what we hear about the prices. The prices. Yeah, you. I mean, you go if you go to an auction, um, uh, out comes the Picasso, dead silence. Once the hammer comes down on the price, applause. Okay, <laughs> so we live in a world where they applaud the price, but not the Picasso. I rest my case. <laughs> They applaud the price. So it was, they should applaud when the Picasso comes out. I know. Yeah. Isn't he good at painting? <laughs> <laughs> Not aren't you good at buying. <laughs>